0: So, we are in John 11 today. And for those of you that maybe you've never read John 11, or you're not very familiar with the Bible at all, or maybe it's your first time at this church, we want to welcome you. Thank you for being here. Uh, I'll give a quick summary of what happens in John 11. John 11, Jesus gets called by some of his friends saying, Hey, one of your friends is sick, come heal him. Jesus lingers, he waits, and instead of going immediately, and then he ends up going there, and by the time he comes, it is too late. His friend Lazarus had died. His sisters, Mary and Martha, are obviously in tears. They're very sad. Their beloved brother had passed away, and Jesus ends up raising Lazarus from the dead. It's his last and most dramatic public miracle that he performs in the Gospel of John. Now, what's interesting is... The gospel, the, uh, chapter 11 is actually a parallel of chapter 9 that we just went through a couple of weeks ago. Do you remember, anyone remember what happens in John 9? Who does Jesus heal in John 9, church? The blind, man. the blind man. Thank you. He heals the blind man. And you remember, Jesus comes, heals the blind man. And do you remember what the reaction was of the religious leaders at that time? Were they like, "Wow, the Messiah has come, right?" Uh, right? Was that their reaction? No, they, they were very upset, right? In fact, they kicked him out of the community, out of the synagogue, almost cursing him. The same exact thing we see happening in John 11. In fact, it's even worse. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and instead of the religious rulers at that time saying, wow, the Messiah is upon us, he's here, let us come and, and, and make him king, in fact, they convene together and make a plot to kill Jesus and to kill, guess who? Lazarus. I always think that's a little funny. Like, you're going to try to kill the guy that Jesus rose from the dead. Like, don't you think that Jesus might end up raising him from the dead again, right? It's, it's silly, but sin is irrational, right? So that's where we're at in John 11. For, for those of you to have a picture, and I'm, I'm actually, speaking of pictures, I'm going to show you a couple of pictures of the tomb of Lazarus, the traditional tomb of Lazarus. If we can go to the next slide. So it is found in Bethany, and this is kind of the the pre-tomb area, the the pre-entrance. This is where we believe Jesus was standing. I've got a little red arrow. Uh, You can see steps going down. This is probably where Jesus was standing, again, assuming this is the actual place. It's been the official site of the tomb of Lazarus since about 400 AD, so that's interesting. But it is in Bethany where... Lazarus was. So if we can go to the next slide. So this is kind of looking into the tomb. This is probably where, if this was the site, Jesus was standing and the rock was covering the tomb like this, and out of which Lazarus came. And the next slide, slide, you'll see this is the actual tomb, likely, where the body of Lazarus was laying. And what they would do in Israel is they would let the bodies lay there for a year. They would decompose. And then after a year, they would come back in, and they would take all the bones, and they'd put them into these little boxes, and uh, you can't see it here, but uh, or on the top right, uh, you could see kind of like cutouts into the wall, and they would actually insert those boxes into that wall, you know, to make room for the next body that would be, it would be kind of like a family tomb. So this is what it looks like. If we can go back to the very first uh, title slide, let's read together from John 11 now. Now that you've got a little picture of what's going on, John 11 verse 1 Now a certain man was ill Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha Now it was Mary who anointed the Lord with an ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill So the sisters sent to him saying Lord he whom you love is ill but when Jesus heard it he said This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Now, if we stop right there, look at these five verses. What is the main idea that John is trying to communicate just here in these five verses, church? If we look at all the details, if we look at all the hints, what John is saying is that Jesus had a very special relationship with these people, with Lazarus, with Mary, with Martha. First of all, this is not a random miracle to a nameless person, right? Blind man, we don't know his name. All the many people that Jesus healed, we only know very few names, but this is actually we have a name of the person. We don't just have his name. We have the names of his two sisters. So there's so much more richness and background to this miracle that Jesus is about to perform. John also says that, oh, this Mary, she anointed his hair, uh, sorry, his feet with her hair, right? He's saying this, she made this huge sacrificial act. In fact, she spent around one year's worth of average wages in that one moment, anointing Jesus. She was very sacrificial. John is like building this case that, that they have a very special relationship. In fact, they come and they say, he whom you love is ill. And not just Mary and Martha are saying that Jesus loves them, but John also confirms this. If we look in verse 5, it says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. It's not just from the mouth of Mary and Martha, but it is actually Jesus actually indeed did love them. Now, we've established they had a very special relationship. We don't know why. Maybe they grew up together. We're not sure. But the point is he really cared for them. He really loved them. They were some of his best friends. But what's interesting is the reaction of Jesus when he hears the news that his friend is ill, Right? It's the complete opposite. We see other times in the Gospels when Jesus hears, hey, my daughter is ill. He gets up and says, I'll go heal your daughter, right? And he goes right away. He responds and reacts. But here, Jesus reacts the complete opposite way that we would expect him to respond. Instead, he waits for another two days. I can only imagine how difficult it must have been for Mary and Martha there, right? The closer the relationship we have with a person, do we have more or we have less expectations from that person? <laughs> right? More, right, church? And a lot of times it's the cause of problems, right? Because we have more expectations. I don't expect a stranger to help me, but if I ask my wife or Or a close friend of mine, if I ask them for help, I expect them to help me. We all do, right? Mary and Martha and Lazarus were in a state of utter desperation, right? They knew how long it took for him to travel from where he was to where they were. Imagine the level of anticipation that Mary and Martha had as they were watching their beloved brother die. I'm sure they were looking in the distance constantly, all day long. You remember when online like shopping just started and you'd order your first online package and you're just like, oh, it's like, oh, is that, you know, is that the is that the package, right? Just imagine them just looking out into the distance, hoping that the next group of people that would come out from the horizon would be Jesus and his disciples. They were watching. They were waiting. I'm certain they were praying with all that they had for Jesus to come quickly, and yet we see that Jesus took his time. Jesus did not come in time. Jesus came when it was already too late. I'm sure Mary and Martha, they watched their beloved brother die right in front of their eyes, knowing that Jesus could have easily, easily healed him. They've seen him heal even worse diseases. Just think about how much more difficult it was for them to watch their, their brother die, knowing that his best friend could easily have healed that. They had hope, they had so much anticipation, right? It'd be easier if you knew like, well, well, my brother's gonna die and there's nothing I can do and you can just make peace with that then and there, right? But here they were waiting, they were waiting, they were waiting only to have all of their hopes just completely dashed against the rocks. I'm sure they knew about the times when Jesus responded quickly to other people's needs. I'm sure they had a lot of questions in their mind, like, where is Jesus? Why isn't he here? Why is he taking his time? Where is he? Could anything be more important than the life of his close friend? And yet Jesus took his time. Why? Jesus gives us the answer immediately in verse 4. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And verse 40, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? As we already mentioned, this is his last public miracle. He knows that. He knows that this miracle will actually force the hand of his enemies to finally get together and make a decision that yes we are going to kill him we're going to get rid of him he knows all of this right he knows this is going to be the last and the greatest testimony to who he actually is because this whole time everyone's confused who is jesus if you're the messiah tell us clearly and he knows this is going to be the last and final demonstration of that and you know what he was doing He was saving this moment, this peak, this climax, for his best friends. Just like God, when he was creating this world, he created the heavens and the earth, right? He creates, 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 and then at the very end of day six, who does he create? Who does he create, church? People. Adam, right? The peak of his Creation. This miracle is the peak of Jesus' miracles. Jesus was saving this climactic unveiling of his glory for his beloved friends. So because Jesus had loved Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Jesus stalled. And this is the first main point of this message. I've got two of them. This is the first one. Sometimes Jesus reveals himself to those whom he loves in great ways, but sometimes it comes at a cost. It comes at a cost, and it came at a cost to Mary and to Martha and to Lazarus. It really reminds me of the story of Job. He was a wealthy man. He was a righteous man. He was a wise man, a happy man. He had seven sons, three daughters. I mean, how perfect, right? Completion. But remember, in Job 1, when the devil comes before God, who was the first one to mention Job in the conversation, church? Who was it? God or the devil? God. God mentions Job. In in, in fact, God says, have you considered my servant Job? You think God had no idea how Satan was going to react? You think God didn't know that Satan was going to jump on that immediately? God allowed Satan to take away everything from Job. His money, his influence, kids, health, friends, everything. Everything. God allowed him to take away everything. And Job, he complained a lot, as would all of us. But in the end, look at the way that Job reacts when God had finally revealed himself to Job. We read in Job 42, verse 5. This is Job speaking after he's seen God, and God spoke to him. He says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. God had prepared Job through some, God had prepared Job through suffering in order to reveal something to Job that only few humans in the history of the entire world would ever experience seeing the glory of God. So deep was the experience of God's glory for Job that a man, a good man, a righteous man who had lost everything unjustly, you could say, a man who had lost everything unjustly, after seeing that, he says, I repent in dust and ashes. God had revealed himself to Job And what he revealed to him was worth more than everything Job had ever lost. I remember me and my friend were once talking about God's glory, and he had this really interesting thought. He said, you know, God's glory, it is so perfect. It is so great, it is so beautiful that we as little human beings, we could work for millions and millions and millions of years just to see his glory even for a few seconds. And that would be worth it. You know why? Because we would be forever changed after seeing the fullness of his glory, assuming we didn't die. I am certain, church, That Job would never have wanted to go through the pain that he went through ever again. I'm certain. I don't think it was easy. I think it was excruciating. But I am also certain that if we were to interview him on his deathbed and we would say, Job, now that your life is over, would you have wanted your life to go any differently? I am certain he would say, no. I trust God And God is good. Even my personal example, me, myself, the most painful day in my life was the day that God had brought me back to him. It's the day that I felt like I was completely just destroyed, mentally, emotionally. I would never want to go through that day ever again. But you know what? I thank God the most for that specific day because that is the day that God brought me back to him. I would never wish that day upon anyone, but I would never have it any other way. Jesus, those whom he loves, sometimes uses suffering as a way to reveal himself deeper, like in the case of Mary and Martha, Job, and many, many other people. But, you know, that's not just true in like particular instances here in this life that's also true if we zoom out and we look at our entire life and we look in light of eternity that's true for every single one of us our whole life you could say is life full of suffering i'm not saying we are suffering more than we're probably not suffering more than most people in this world we live in the wealthiest nation in the history of the world And yet, our life is still full of suffering. We still have suffering and it's real. And God isn't just using one particular moment or one particular hard day in our life to reveal something about himself. But all of life and all of the suffering found in our life is actually preparing something for us. It's being used by God. Why do I know this? Because this is what the Word of God tells us. 2 Corinthians 4.17, it says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. All comparison. God is reminding us that all the sufferings in our life are light and momentary you know who's writing this, church? Who wrote 2 Corinthians? What was his name? Shout it out. Paul. Do you know what kind of sufferings Paul experienced? Not because of his own sinfulness, but for the sake of the gospel, right? He was whipped. He, they had s- stones thrown at him. He was adrift at sea, hunger, thirst, betrayals, anxiety of caring for the churches of God, And he he looks at all this and he says, this is light, momentary affliction. And it's preparing. It's actually all the suffering in our life is actively doing something. It is preparing for us, creating a glory beyond all comparison. God is preparing something so good for us that when we stand in glory... When we are finally there, and we remember our days here on earth with all of its suffering, we will look at all that, and we will see the glory that God has prepared for us, and we're going to say, look, I can't even compare the two. I can't even put the two on a scale. It, it, it would be disrespectful. It would be rude. It would be silly to even compare the two. That's how good of a glory God is preparing for all of us who have trusted in him. But church, the encouragement that Paul had only comes to us if we look at eternity by faith. By faith. That's why the very next verse, verse 18, look what it says. As we look, this is all being prepared, as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, they're transient, meaning they're they're temporary, they're passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Here's a very, very practical application of this verse and of this message for all of us, starting with myself. How often Do I actually look, not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen, to the things that are eternal? Ask yourself, how often do I actually do that in my day-to-day? I'm not saying theoretically what we as Christians should do or on Sundays if someone randomly quizzes you and you get into a conversation with people, but actually, in my day-to-day How often is my heart looking to the things that are unseen? Because the Bible says that that's what we ought to do. Sometimes we say, well, you know, there's that Bible passage that says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those. So we use that as an excuse to say, well, I I don't even know what's up there in heaven, what's unseen, so I'm not even worried about it. I'll get to it when I get to it. First of all, that passage isn't talking about heaven. Second of all... Here, we actually see that we ought to look to the things that are unseen. So how often am I actually doing that? How long? How often is my heart longing for the unseen world that God is preparing for us, not in theory, but in actual day-to-day? Or in my life, do all I see is my money, my career, my house, my car, the physical well-being of my children, my next vacation, whatever it is, is this all that I see? Because if this is all that I see, and that's all that my heart focuses on, first of all, how is that any different than what this world focuses on? And second of all, no wonder the Suffering that we experience doesn't feel light and momentary. No wonder the sufferings in my life feel like they are eternal and heavy because all I see is the temporary. And for me, that is eternity. But if we by faith actually believe and look to the unseen that God is preparing for us, the burden of today's suffering becomes light and momentary it doesn't say that the burden is completely lifted it doesn't mean doesn't say that we are no longer afflicted no we still have this affliction but by faith God gives us strength today in order to bear the affliction and get through it church this is how diamonds are made are they not diamonds are made from what church carbon right Carbon, just good old carbon, the stuff you find in your pencils, lumps of coal, right? And the way it's created is by carbon receiving extremely high pressure and extremely high temperature. Then and only then it turns into diamond. And we all want to be diamonds. We all want to have the glorious brilliance of diamonds just without the extreme pressure and the extreme temperature. Church, let us trust God that if there was a better way, a better path for me, that he would have already put me on that path, which means I am already on the best path according to the infinite wisdom of our God. He knows what he's doing. And you know, it wouldn't be right for me to finish this first point of my message without remembering Jesus and his suffering. It's not like Jesus is sitting up there in heaven and he just like gets a kick out of applying pressure and heat upon us. Like, hey, trust me, trust me, you'll like it when we're done. Like, you'll, you'll think it's worth it. No, that's not the way Jesus treats us. We see that Jesus in John 11, when he came and he's seen the tomb of Lazarus, he see Mary, Martha, the Jews crying. It says that Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the entire Bible. Jesus wept. Why would Jesus cry if he knows that he's about to resurrect this man in two minutes? You know why he wept? Because he's seen the pain and the depth of the suffering of the people that he loved. You think God, when he sees our suffering, you think he's just stoically, coldly just there, not understanding us, like, oh, It'll be worth it, just hang in there. No, he feels all of it and more. And Jesus, notice, he didn't just weep with them, just kind of sat there, pat him on the back. No, Jesus was the ultimate righteous sufferer. Job is just a shadow of the righteous suffering of Jesus Christ. Job was a good man. Jesus was a perfect man. And the distance between a good man and a perfect man is infinite. And Jesus will never put us through more than he himself had already suffered there on the cross. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We will never have to experience, church, being forsaken by God and the suffering of being forsaken by God. Because he was forsaken for me and for you. Jesus is the true diamond, the ultimate one, because he endured the infinite heat and pressure of the wrath of God on our behalf. That is the goodness of Jesus. So that one day, we too, like Lazarus, can hear his voice and rise again to eternal life. Oh, church... May we trust the Lord with all of our hearts. Truly, our God is so, so good. He's not playing some cruel joke on us. He doesn't delight in our sufferings. He suffered more than all of us to prove to us that he loves us. Our God is truly infinitely good to the very core of his being. And even if our suffering here in this world, it doesn't make sense, even if we never get an answer to why a particular event or suffering happened in our life, God is still good. Job never read chapter 1 of Job. Job never knew why it all happened. Job never heard or found out about the conversation that God and the devil had. Job had no idea. But God had remained infinitely good. Amen? That is the goodness of our God. And the second point, this is shorter, but if we look at verse 17, Jesus comes to Bethany, to the town where Lazarus died, Martha, the first sister, comes out to meet him, and she tells him in verse 21, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Then Mary comes out, verse 32, literally the same exact thing, verbatim. She says, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. What they're telling Jesus is... They're calling him Lord, which is really good. They're saying, we love you. You're the Messiah. You're the master of my life. You are Lord. Yes, yes, yes. I trust you. But there's a a but there, right? But if you had come in time, my brother wouldn't have died. If only you were here on time, everything would have been good and in its place. What I want to do is I want to quickly just zoom into the conversation between Martha and Jesus. Chapter 11, verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. She's saying that. She doesn't really understand it because we'll see later. She can't even grasp the fact that Jesus is going to raise him from the dead right now. Verse 23, Jesus says, said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. I know. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Notice, Jesus says, your brother will rise. And that's kind of a vague vague phrase, right? It's understandable why Martha would misunderstand Jesus. And, And I think he actually did that on purpose. It's vague, and we'd probably all understand it the way she understood it. But, but notice, Jesus doesn't go in and start correcting her. No, 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 Martha, you didn't understand what I said. What I really meant was he was gonna, I'm going to raise him from the dead now. No, Jesus is leading her on a path to teach her, the Jews, and all of us, something about himself. He says, your brother will rise. I know he'll rise on the last day. And instead of correcting her, explaining it more, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. So Martha says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But in response, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Very interesting. In other words, what what Martha was telling him is, Lord, if I had you plus good timing, then everything would have been good. Then life would have been all right. And Jesus says, no, Martha, you have all that you need. You don't need me plus good timing. I can come early. I can come late. I can come any time that I want. But when I come, you already have everything you need. I am your everything, Martha. You have all you need. You know why? Because I am life itself. I am the source of life. Church, if we have the fountain of life with us, what more do we need? We don't. We don't need anything more than life and the source of life itself. But church, how often do we as people, how often do I tell ourselves, well, if I had Jesus plus something else, then everything would be good in life. If I had Jesus plus a good family life, then everything would be good. If I had Jesus plus a wife or a husband, then everything would be good. If I had Jesus plus a good financial situation or a good house or good timing or good friends, good health, then everything. I would be complete, then everything would be made right. I think the big lesson from this chapter for all of us today, church, is that if we think we need Jesus plus something else, then our view of Jesus is not big enough. We don't yet see Him in His magnificence and glory that He is in. Yes, Mary loved Martha. Sorry, Martha loved Jesus. And yes, Jesus loved Martha. But in that moment, like all of us, Martha did not realize that all that she ever truly needed was standing there right in front of her. No matter what time of day, no matter who is dead or who is alive, no matter what is going on in this world... All that she truly needed was Jesus, and he was already with her. As I call the band up, I want to close with looking at Philippians 3, verse 7. As we read this passage, pay attention as Paul talks about the worth of having Christ, who is all that we need, and the link between having Christ and the resurrection. Jesus talks about the resurrection John 11. Paul ends Philippians 3 also talking about the resurrection. So pay attention to that as we read Philippians 3, 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for this, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Here we see a man who understood the worth of having Christ. Here we see a man who understood that if he had Christ, then he had everything he ever needed. He could lose everything, and yet he still has everything because he has Christ. In Paul's eyes, Christ was precious. In fact, he was so worthy that everything in his life, everything else, he considered as rubbish. Rubbish is a British word that we don't use, and all it means is garbage, like just trash, laying around, like an empty bag of of chips, you know, just flying around the streets, styrofoam cups. He says, everything else in my life is just garbage. It's a big trash heap in comparison to the worth of knowing and having Christ. Why did he see Christ as worthy as precious? Verse 9, he says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Meaning, no matter how much Paul tried, no matter how many good works he did, no matter how many good intentions he had, he could never be good enough on his own, and Paul understood that. And the same goes for all of us. We can never be saved through our good works or our good intentions. Well, I tried my best. That's not going to save us. Church, that's the gospel. That's what the whole gospel is all about, is we are incapable of saving our own selves. We can never truly please God because we already sinned. We messed up our record. God's standard is perfection because he is a perfect God. And only Jesus, the perfect person, can save us. And that is exactly what he did there on the cross. And so we receive a righteousness, verse 9, that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness, not from the law, not from myself, but from God that depends on faith. Because at the end of the day, church, death will claim all that we have. It's the reality. And death is the only taboo topic nowadays in our society, is it not? We can talk about anything. We can talk about the most perverted things. But death, don't talk about it. It's taboo. But the reality is it will take everything we have, our families, our friends, our home, our careers, our fun, our experiences. Death will sweep everything away. And so our only hope, our single hope is the resurrection. But only those who have the righteousness of God will be raised to eternal life. So if we have Christ, church, truly we have all that we need. And if we, like Martha, think that we need, yes, Jesus, and also good timing or something else, then our understanding of Jesus is far too small. Right now we're going to stand for a time of just quiet prayer. We're going to have a minute. But just a few questions I want you to pray about is, one is, do I have Christ? Do I have Christ? And if you do, then do I, in this moment, understand, like Paul That in Christ, I already have all that I need. And if I do have all that I need, what does that mean? What does that mean for me today? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you. We have nothing in our hands, God. We have nothing to bring. I pray that all of us would see you for who you really are, God. You are our everything. You are the resurrection and the life. You are the the source of life, life itself. God, I pray that we would see more and more how worthy you are, how precious you are, and we would live that out. Help us in our sufferings. Help us be patient as we look to the things that are unseen, to the things that are eternal, as we await glory i pray for those who maybe have not come to know you yet that they would put their trust in you that they would surrender their lives to you and know you and love you and seek your face and live for you and one day also with all of us attain to the resurrection of the dead lord we thank you we worship you we pray this all in your name amen